Welcome to my podcast. My guest today is Carol Connors, who is best known for co-writing the theme song to Rocky. Unfortunately, during the taping of our podcast, we had some technical difficulties and Carol's video was not recorded. Sound is great totally fine. So if you listen to your podcast audio only, you're not going to experience anything different than you normally would. If you do like to visually watch podcasts, well, we try to do our best to work around this issue, but I think we've come up with some interesting visuals that you're still going to enjoy. Carol is an icon. She's an absolute gem, and I can't wait for you guys to meet her. Can I call you Ms. Z? Yes, absolutely. Truly an honor to have you on here. I am such a huge fan and uh, so honored to to also know you and, and kind of call you a friend, if I may be so bold. I was thinking about when we met and I feel like you have been such a staple around Hollywood, but I think we actually like met met in terms of like, you know, really starting to know each other was last summer at the premiere of the gray man that Netflix had in Hollywood. I remember being there with my friend, Natalie, and all of a sudden you, you appeared with like a publicist from Netflix and you, you had your camera and you <laughs> sat with us. I remember that. I remember that. Yeah. Now um, I remember that um, the film to me uh, was like a, this could never happen. Outrageous. James Bond on steroids, if you know what I mean. <laughs> yes. But it was a wonderful premiere and I loved going. I took my friend who was my house guest yes. and he had never been to a premiere at the uh, Roman Chinese. So it was quite exciting. And you were so pretty and so oh. lovely. And I remember we started talking. Yeah. And then I think I saw you next at uh, at a house up Mount Olympus um, at some screening during award season. After that, it was like, was it not the Asher house, but... The Rosses. Ross and House. it's uh, to me, uh, one of the most, my favorite place or one of them is to get to see a pre-Oscar film at the Rosses. Yes. Because they are just such elegant people and the, just the setting and the beauty and, and, you know, and the film and their screening room because he was involved in sound is exceptional. And yes, and I walked in, I'll never forget this. You had just seen the Spectre advanced copy of, the, the, of the documentary, yes. the four-part documentary on Showtime, and you went, oh my God, oh my God, Carol Connors, oh, I just saw you. Yes, <laughs> and I, I was, was so touched yeah, by, I, that you were so taken by it. Well, I mean, after having met you and us have, having seen each other, to my surprise, when I tuned into that four-part documentary on Showtime, who comes up right away and is like interviewed throughout was you. And to me, I, I remember... I remember that trial because I was an anchor at KTLA at that time and I I covered it from the news desk. So it 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 always evokes like my early careers in journalism and then to see you there just all intertwined. So yeah, it was I did get excited to see you because I couldn't wait to talk to you because I had no idea that your life was intertwined with him, which is which is where, you know, let's let's dive into that part because you were born and bred in LA, correct? No, no. I was born in New Jersey, the oh. Garden State, oh. and I and I came here to California, not on my own, obviously, when I was five, and my sister was three and a half. Yeah, so basically, you grew up here. Yes, I grew up here, but was not. But was not New Brunswick, born. New Jersey. <laughs> I'm a Jersey girl. Yeah, I could see that. Yeah, but so being raised here, um. 
Uh, it to me as a transplant, I mean, I moved here from Canada 30 years ago. So uh, I, I'm a transplant, but I have kids who were born here and they're now in their teens. And, you know, LA, having LA kids who are born and bred is like, you know, it's a whole other thing. It's a whole other thing. So tell me about growing up in LA back in your day. Like when you went to Fairfax High School, what what decade was that? Many decades ago. <laughs> so I drive past Fairfax High School all the time. Back then, it was oh, very, very different today. Right? It's very different. Um, yeah. First of all, I was supposed to go to Hamilton High School. Oh, but yeah. because when I, I I was in the district for Hamilton. That's in the valley, I though. Was, Is Hamilton not no, in the no, valley? No, no, no. Hamilton High was in um, L.A. proper. I was coming out of junior high school, which was Louis Pasteur, and mm. that was where we were supposed to go. But um, I was not the most popular kid in school, mm. and I yearned. Oh, it's okay. I can see your facial expression. I yearned to be popular and to be known. I mean, it was sort of something I really wanted. So... I found a way. I didn't want to go where the two most popular girls were going, which was Francine Bunny Weisbart and also Joni Bear. And they were the queens of Louis Pasteur Junior High. And I was, I mean, I, I remember one story that that growing up that really saddened me so much. Um we did book reports in those days. I don't know if they still do them today, but yeah. Bunny had a team and she uh, she would have all her friends on it and they would pick them as the teacher went around. And I was the only one left standing in the line and she had to pick me for her team. And you knew that she didn't want that, right? Yes, I was very aware of it. Heartbreaking. And she, we went to her home to do the report and I had a minor role. I think I played a tree or something. And she said, my father is so handsome. He looks like Clark Gable. And all the girls went, including me went, oh, and uh, well, my father, he was, her father was tall, dark and handsome. My father had been a jockey. So he was five feet tall. That's why I'm so tall. And he was, had gotten hurt on the horses. He had broken his nose and whatever. And my father, in my mind, was not tall, dark, and handsome, obviously. And I was so embarrassed that I couldn't say, well, my father's tall, dark, and handsome, too. It, it really made such an impression on me. And I remember we did the book report, and I never forgot that she didn't want me on the team. But yeah. the irony of this, the tragedy of this, is years later, I bumped into Francine Bunny Weisbart. And I said, how are you? And she said, Annette, my real name, Annette, uh, uh, Carol Connors. And I went, yes. And she said, my best days were in high school, in junior high school and high school. She said, those are the days I remember about my life. And I said, no, 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 Bunny. You know, she said, look at what you've done with yours. I said, you will do things too. She committed suicide. Oh, I never forgot that. Wow. I was so saddened by that, that in her mind, those were her days. Yeah. And nothing yeah. to live for. 
And she yeah. ended up committing suicide after I saw her. You know, it, not it, because it, of me, but no, of, of course, happened. you know, because it's it's a, it's a mental illness, and and if she thought that those were her best years, um, you know, that's that's tough. And so so in school in high school is when you began your music career and somewhere there is when Phil Spector entered your life, correct? Well, it was a little bit before that. It was before Donna and I were going, we were graduating to go into high school and we were both going to Fairfax. I had got, I had talked my mother and my mother went to the school board or whatever and was able to get me a transfer to go to Fairfax. So Phil was dating my girlfriend, Donna, and we were like in between junior high school and high school. And I was sort of the beard or the lookout or whatever <laughs> you want to call me in yeah. those days. The and third wheel. Mooching and kissing and doing a little light petting in, you know, and I would be watching to make sure they were, they were in the car. And I would always be doing two things, twiddling my thumbs, which I still do, and singing. Oh. And one day, Phil said to me, I love your voice. How old was he at this time? He would have been 18 because he was going to be leaving high school. And I was like 18 and a half. And I said, he said, I love your voice. I'm going to write a song for it. Do you have $10? I went, $10? Phil, I don't have 10 cents. <laughs> <laughs> I'm 16 and a half years of age. I don't have, there's no money in my, in my lunch box. He said, well, if you can get $10 together, I'll write the song and you can be in our singing group. So I went to my mom and dad and I said, I need $10. We were poor. We were not destitute, but we were poor. And $10 in those days was a lot of money. Yeah. And I said, mom, I need $10. And my mother said, Go do your homework. I said, no, I must have $10. I was very precocious. And my father, who had been a jockey, was not a gambling man, but jockeys live on the edge. Yes, they do. Gail, give her the $10. And, I'm, and my mother said, Julius, we don't have $10 to spare. And I said, but mom, if you give me the $10, we're going to live in a mansion. We're going to have a beautiful car. And daddy, I'm going to buy you a racehorse. And my father said, I don't want a racehorse. I'm off the track. <laughs> no racehorse. Finally, my parents gave me the $10. And I went to Phil. And I the backstory of that is Phil and his sister Shirley and his mother, mother's, uh, mother Bertha, lived in New York. And his father committed suicide. And his mother took the children to, to California. Mm -hmm. So on his father's epitaph, it said to know him was to love him. And he turned it into a teenage lament. And he literally produced and cast my voice. He loved the sound of my voice. So we went in and we cut the flip side of it. And it was called, don't you worry, my little pet. And I would go, I'll think of you. Yes, I will. And it was an awful song, but my voice on tape kept cutting through. And he said, I even love your voice more on tape than I did when you in at school, when you were, you know, just singing. So he wrote the song. 
And he said, well, be here tomorrow. We have to go back in the studio and you have to learn it. And I said, well, how am I going to get there? And he's, I don't have a car and I can't drive. I'm too young. He said, take the bus. So I did. And I took the bus. We went into the, into the we were like a garage band, actually a garage band. We rehearsed, went in the studio a couple of days later. The song went on to become the number one record in the world, not just the United States, the world, Germany, England, Japan, France. And it was like it exploded. Yeah, I mean, it was the number one song on the Billboard uh, Hot 100. And that made you the first woman to ever chart. Like you, which is incredible. Um, in a group, uh, yes. And the Fleetwoods, which came after us, was the reversal when they did. I'm Mr. Blue. Boo -doo -doo -doo, was a guy with the two girls. So they took the formula of Phil and reversed it. And that is how it, it just ended up uh, being the number one record in the world and, and was number one for the longest of that year. And it's the reason Elvis Presley became my first boyfriend. Uh, well, we'll get to Elvis Presley in one <laughs> second here. In one second. But so you're 16 and a half. Phil is uh, about 18. 18 and a half. He 18 was and a half. Now, of course, we all know how his life ended um, and, yes. and, and all the tragedies that happened uh, to him. But back then what was he like and and did you did you feel safe and comfortable around him he was whimsical he was brilliant he was funny he and marshall lee the other teddy bear who was gorgeous and when we would fly somewhere like when we did the perry como show for instance all the stewardesses would hit on marshall because he was so handsome and phil drooled and he was like a nebisha looking guy and nobody cared anything about me except my voice. So Phil and I would spend a tremendous amount of time together. In those days, it wasn't a jet. It was a propeller plane. Mm. And he would do Lenny Bruce. He loved Lenny Bruce. And he loved uh, Jonathan Winters. And he would imitate La, like Ma Frickett. He would, and I can still imitate Phil imitating Jonathan Winters doing Ma Frickett, you know, and he was he was very special. His favorite composer was Wagner, my least favorite composer. But that and he told me once he said, you know, the bridge of to know him is to love him is taken from is and there are notes that are similar to a Wagnerian opera. Mm. And he mm -hmm. had in those days nobody had ever heard those chord changes. Da 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 de, da 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 da. They were so unusual. It was all Phil. Well, then, he, you know, he went on to gain so much fame with building the, the wall of sound and, and, you know, you're watching all of this unfold, but then, you know, when tragedy struck and the, uh, the, this death of Lana Clarkson happened in his mansion in the subsequent trial, how did that make you feel? Or, or did that, did he had so much time passed that it just, it almost felt like a different person. Like, was he a stranger to you or was there a disassociation or was there still some connection that you felt that was very tragic for you? Well, I was very aware of Phil's incredible genius. I mean, I, I, I was aware that he was, you know, the genius of rock and roll or one of them. Um, we did not really 
Phil had a, excuse me, a tendency of creating and then destroying. So he was almost like a Spengali. Mm. And, you know, I went, I had a terrible car accident right after to know him. Pretty, not right after, but, and that helped break up the group. But Phil knew that the formula for to know him is to love him was the sound of my voice and the simplicity, not the wall of sound, which was his other, they were like mini Wagnerian operas. But to, I love how you love me. I love how your eyes close. He found the Parasisters because the, the girls told me this. And he told them to study my voice, that he, they, they wouldn't, Priscilla wouldn't sound like me, but that to study the, the honesty of my voice. As Talia Shire from Rocky said about, about that era of music, she said, Carol was the innocence of our youth, mm. her voice. And he, Phil, the first time I heard, I love how you love me. And I talk about this on the documentary. I was driving in a car in my car and it was raining and the song came on and for one nano split second in time as robin williams would say i thought it was me and then i realized i had never recorded that song i knew at that moment in time that phil knew the formula and that i was aced I, to this day, believed he tried to keep me out of the music industry. I remember pulling on the side of the road and crying. I was sobbing because I knew that that was not me. How did that make you feel? I mean, it, my heart hurt when... Like a has-been? No. Let's uh, go to like a has-been. At, 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 at the age of 18 at, or 18? 19. Well, yes, exactly. I you mean, know. to come off the number one record in the world and yes. then... Have your, you know, Phil Spector becoming the genius of rock and roll music. Yes, yes. And 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 I couldn't get arrested if I stood on a street corner nude and I had a really cute little body. I mean, the bottom line is it was not going to happen for me. And I to this day believe that Phil had some type of ability to keep me out of the, uh, it just never happened. That's what Harvey Weinstein did to so many actresses. He blacklisted so many actresses when uh, when he couldn't get what he wanted. I bumped into uh, Bill Medley of the Righteous Brothers, and they were coming off what was the number one record of their time, which was, I love how um, uh, you've lost that love and feeling. feeling. And yeah. we were at Connie Stevens' ski extravaganza, raising money for autistic children. And uh, Bill and I started talking and he said, we were coming off the number one record and we broke our contract. We couldn't deal with the insanity of Phil Spector anymore. Yeah. So I think the more famous Phil became and the star maker, people would not say to him, what are you doing? Why are you carrying a gun into the recording studio? What? Why did you just shoot the gun off at A&M Studios? Mm -hmm. I mean, because he was so brilliant and so successful, I think his demons took over. Uh, that That's my theory. Do you think that for you, it ended up being a blessing in disguise then that that happened? That's an interesting question. Um, I do not think that it would have started without Phil. 
Yeah. I think that without to know him is to love him and Phil Spector, I never would have become who I became. Yeah. Um, I yeah. mean, he was almost like my muse or whatever you say. Yeah. But I do believe I was with my girlfriend, Mary Lynn Ross, at, in this house. And I was bemoaning about that I had never had another hit record as a singer on my own. And she said, I'm going to use a bad word. You can cut it out. No, you can. She said, you can use she said Carol, shut the fuck up. She said, you won the lottery. You won the jackpot. You co-wrote the theme from Rocky. Be quiet. And I, this was years ago. And it made such an impression on me. So if you ask the question, I don't think my life would have taken the trajectory that it took yeah. if I would have continued singing and had a hit record and it wouldn't have lasted forever. Maybe I would have had another one or two. I always dreamt of it. Yeah. But I went on to do other things and I don't know if I would have, if I would have had that success yeah. as a singer. So then did Elvis Presley hear your song and then seek you out? Of course and then he heard it. It was the number one record in the world. <laughs> no, no, yes. he didn't listen yes. to that particular song. Of course, see, of course, he, did. <laughs> he was in Germany, if I'm not mistaken, at the time, and um, he fell in love with my voice. So um, he had met Priscilla. Remember, we're talking decades ago, as yes. you said. Yes, and he said um, he would always say to his. They were called the Memphis Mafia. Mm -hmm. Those were the guys, you know, that hung that were with him all the time. Joe Esposito was his lead man. And of course, Colonel Parker ran the show. And he said, um, I love that girl's voice. I love to meet that girl. And one day I was in a market and this really sort of creepy little guy came up to me and he said, aren't you the girl that sang to know him is to love him? And I went, yes. And he said, Elvis would love to meet you. And I went, right, sure, of course. You know, he said, no, no, I mean it. So being that I was my father's daughter and sort of lived on the edge, we're talking a lot of years ago, I gave him my phone number. Oh, she gave it. And sure enough, he called about a week later and he said, I'd like to take you up to Elvis's. He'd love to meet you. And and I went, okay. And my mother was going, no, you can't go with this stranger. You can't. And I said, mom, I'm going. I was my own person. I'm going with him. If I don't come back, call the police department. <laughs> I went up to Elvis's. He was renting a house on Bellagio and had just finished Viva Las Vegas with Anne Margaret. And uh, whom I think was one of the great loves of his life. I've always felt that. And I was at one end of the room and he was at the other and there was like a pool table and he was so beautiful. He was like a cat and I love cats. He was like this beautiful cat in his movements. And I was like a mouse standing there. And he came up to me and he said, uh, so uh, why'd you name the group the teddy bears? And I thought, it is Elvis Presley talking to me. And I went, just want to be your teddy bear. And that started our love affair. Was he a good kisser, Carol? Yes. Don't ask <laughs> me any other question. Just okay. know he was. Because I'm not going to answer it. 
just know right. he was my first, my first, first, first love and boyfriend. And he was, he was very, very kind to me, very sweet. And just, he thought that, and I, I have a picture that I looked at when I did my show, which Roy and I may be doing other ones, but there's a picture of Priscilla and myself back to back. And for one split second, when I was on stage and I looked up at the picture that was on the screen, I went, which one is me? Because we both were brunettes. We both, I have green eyes. I think she has blue eyes. And we, we looked, he told me we used to, he felt we looked alike, that we resembled each other. Yeah. And when I looked at that picture, I went, oh my God, we did. And as fate would have it, I did her first film, Love is Forever with Michael Landon and her and Laura Branigan. What did you do on the film? I wrote the theme song oh, with Lee Holdred amazing. called Love is Forever. Yeah. And she and I talked about Elvis. She used to live down the street from me. She just moved about a year ago. Yeah. That was my encounter with Elvis. And I always say I went with him for nine months, but I was too stupid. I didn't have a baby. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, first loves are always so hard to get over because they are so significant. Was that the case for you? No, uh -uh. It, it ran its course. Huh. I mean, I adored him. I loved him. He said he loved me. <clears throat> but the bottom <laughs> line is, uh, I asked Joe Esposito that years later. I said, Joe, did Elvis really care about me? And he said, more than you know, Carol, he adored you. And whenever, you know, through the years, we stayed friends. I mean, I went to his opening in Vegas. I, I would take my girlfriends. Uh, in fact, he was with Shelly Fabre, you know, Johnny Angel, how I love you. And they were sitting on this couch and we were coming down the stairs in his dressing room. And he said to, to Shelly, he said, Shelly, here comes beautiful Carol. She's blind as a bat. We went together for two and a half years. And I looked at Elvis and I said, Elvis, it oh, he said, we were we went together on and off for two and a half years. And I said, Elvis, darling, it was more off than on. And of course, <laughs> he had a great sense of humor. He laughed. And um, he was just very good to me. And yeah, so, it ran uh, its course. It, no, it ran its course. Yeah. He did not want to go out. But, he had everything brought yeah. in, similar to Hugh Hefner. They, he, he wanted things to come in. And I was very young at the time and I wanted to party. I wanted to go out. I wanted to dance. Yeah. You know, and that's not what Elvis's MO was. I wasn't quite as available when he wanted to see me. In fact, one time he called yeah. and my mother answered the phone and she said, Annette, my real name, there's an Elvis Presley on the phone for you. <laughs> little old Jewish lady, what can I tell you? <laughs> but it just ran its course. And yeah. then my next boyfriend was a, a psychiatrist. And I think I needed a psychiatrist. <laughs> after my love what did, uh, what did you think of last year's Boz Lerman film, Elvis with Austin Butler? Did that bring back any memories for you? Or did that trigger anything? It was beyond brilliant. It was Elvis. It was, El and not only I said this, Priscilla said it and the beautiful late Lisa Marie said it. I mean, he, he I, I met him. I, I met Baz and I also met um, Austin Butler. And Austin told me that he studied Elvis 
for two years before they went to film. Two years. He was Elvis. On that, I mean, I was, I, I remember my heart racing at, at times. I was with my best friend, Barbie Benton. And I remember saying, Barbie, I, I'm so, I'm, I'm really having trouble watching this film. And, and there were moments of great clarity, moments when I could see that it was Elvis. Um, he captured, he channeled him, captured him, channeled him, whatever you want to say. It's so and, beautiful. Uh, Oh. I really wanted him to win the Oscar. I was, I voted for him, obviously. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, you know, speaking of voting for him, for Oscars, you are a member of the Academy. And and was that, was it the, was it uh, the theme song uh, to Rocky that actually, because you won the Academy Award for co-writing that. And was that what got you into the Academy? I did not win it. We lost. Oh, I thought you it's, did. Win. Everybody thinks we won it. It's Isn't the that only great, time though? that Barbara Streisand ever <laughs> wrote a song with Paul Williams from a film called A Star is Born called Evergreen. And two things happened. First of all, there was an article where Barbara said of everything in her life, the biggest shock was that she won the Oscar over Gonna Fly Now. Um, and the other one was when ha Henry Mancini said to me at the Oscars, he said, we were, they were up for, in fact, Elvis was offered, if you looked, if you watched the film, he was offered the part and uh, Colonel Parker did not like Barbara Streisand. It's in the film. And he, he said, Elvis said that um, Colonel Parker turned it down. But I remember Elvis saying uh, that Colonel Parker said, my boy ain't going to play no second fiddle to no Barbara Streisand. Mm -hmm. and end up a drunk. Mm -hmm. I think in my mind, in my heart, if Elvis would have done that film, I think he would have lived. I think that more than anything, he loved Jimmy Dean. He loved film. I think he wanted the recognition of becoming not just a performer and a musician, but an actor. Yeah. And I think that would have saved his life. Well, it's, it's arguably, I mean, would you say it's also the song that really, I mean, to know him is to love him. Yes, that that was the, that was the biggest song in the world. It put you on the map, right? But the Rocky song is what really made your career, did it not? Absolutely, absolutely. But in between that, I did another thing that uh, put me in the uh, in front of the entire boy, hot rod. Uh, you know, uh, surfing community. I'm the only girl in the history, and I'm not bragging, I'm just making a statement, you can yeah. look this up, of rock and roll that ever wrote a Hot Rod song, and it went to number two. We were on our way to number one, and the Beatles came out with I Want to Hold Your Hand <laughs> and blew us off the number one spot. But that was, um, well... <laughs> And Brian Wilson said to me, we always knew it was written by a, and he sort of spit the word out. And I, I said, well, Brian, how did you Wait, know what that? did he say? We always knew it was written it by It was a... written, Hey Little Cobra became one of the biggest Hot Rod songs. Yes. Yeah. And Carol Shelby, of course, is the man who, 
created the car, the, the Cobra. And he said, in fact, Ford versus Ferrari is all about this. Yeah. And he said, <laughs> so Brian Wilson, Brian Wilson of the Beach Boys, because I had penetrated, good choice of words, the All Boys Club said to me, we always knew it was written by a girl. And I said, well, Brian, how did you know that? He said, because you can't take your car out of gear and let it coast to the line. That's the last line of the song. And I said, Brian, if, you're, if your car is that much in front, that's exactly what you can do. And they never forgave me for penetrating the all boys club because I'm the only girl that ever did. Boys club, right? How how has that, what was that like back then? The, how were you treated? I mean, you you were successful. You were, nom, you, you wrote, I mean, the ultimate boys movie is Rocky and here's Carol. <laughs> I know. I refuse to believe that even though I'm sure it happened, that because I'm, I'm very positive in many ways. My sister always said that when we grew up, she's a year and a half younger, she never heard me say couldn't, wouldn't, shouldn't, can't, won't. So I'm positive. So in my mind, I refuse to believe that I lost a job or I didn't get a nomination that I think I should have gotten because I was a girl. I just would not go there. I, I just kept moving forward. I, it was, I, I couldn't do that. I couldn't do that to myself. Even though when I look back on it today, yeah, I wouldn't doubt that that things did hold me back from, from certain things. Um, I mean, I had so many people, so many men that made passes at me and that, you know, wanted to keep me, wanted to buy me houses. I wasn't going to go there. I didn't want to do that. And in essence, I think that, you know, I just moved forward in a positive manner on my own. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I can understand the movements today, you know. Yeah, exactly. You risked, you risked a lot for your career and in life by not doing what the boys club wanted you to do. At the same time, though, look at you today, like you rock. <laughs> so <laughs> <laughs> well, as um, Hugh Hefner said about me when I was because Robert Culp was one of my boyfriends and we would go up to the mansion and Hef said that I had middle class sex mores. I'll never forget that line. We did a Playboy layout after Rocky and it was beautiful. It was just beautiful. And in the end, he gave me and I think I'm one of the only people it was between the two of us whether he would print it was going to be called and she writes songs dot 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 also and I was on top of the baby grand piano like this like this kawaii it, it, beautiful and Naked? practically nothing well close yes. pretty close okay Mario Caselli was the uh, wonderful photographer and I was after a while you just start taking off your clothes <laughs> and you just don't care but all I could think of was my father is going to go to his poker game and some one of his poker players is going to say, your daughter? And I could we could not settle on one picture. One wow. picture. And I wouldn't, he, he didn't, I have all the negatives. He, yeah. he said that if he, he would give them to me 
And he did. He was a man of his word. And the bottom line is I just, I couldn't do it. I couldn't do it. So they've never even, they've never been published anywhere? Never. What are you going to do with that, with those negatives? Well, we'll see what happens with my documentary. Yes. But right now they yeah. have, you know, Elvis yeah. Rocky and me, the Carol Connor story. But no, uh-uh. he was a man of his word. He, Because we could not agree on that one picture because it was two, there were like two pictures and it was so risque because I'm telling you, after a while, you just forget that, yes. excuse me, I'm not wearing clothes. Yeah. But you know. but Carol, I, I also feel that back then what was considered risque, like it's probably very chaste compared to what's, ha- what's, what's you know, what's considered risque today. I'm no sure- kidding, Kimasabi. <laughs> but back then, yeah, it was risque. Yeah. You know, back then, you know, Rhett Butler saying, Frankly, my dear, I don't give a damn. Yeah. Was like it blew the world apart. Yes. You know, how yeah. could he say that? Yeah. Well, I just couldn't allow the pictures. Two pictures out of thousands, thousands of pictures that Mario took of me. Do you like those photos though? Like personally? Yeah, they're beautiful. Okay. But he That's said good. to me, um, he said to me, um, you have middle class sex, Maury. Okay. So what does that mean? That means that where my head, in my mind, where my head was at, I could not get past um, things that that my mother and father had instilled in me yeah. growing up. And that was one of them. You know, it just, it wasn't right to be semi-nude. And so I didn't. But the, I, I think we, we, we all have mores that come from what our parents instilled in us. And if you didn't have good parents or if you didn't have the right parents, or if you had several different parents, you, it, it would be different. Right. So, uh, absolutely. But my parents were, uh, they weren't, my dad wasn't strict, but they instilled a lot of things in me. Mm-hmm. I feel, uh, you know, honor, integrity, uh, being true to your friends. I mean, Robert Culp used to say to me, I will go back to back with Carol in an alley anytime because I know she has my back. Yeah. I mean, yeah. to me, those things are important. Yeah. Today, it's an, it's, we're in another, we're in another way of life. Oh, you know, yeah. I mean, life, and I have many different feelings about it. And some of them are tragic. Some of them are wonderful. I mean, I think with the advent of, of the internet, which I love, I think came Big Brother. And, you know, and Animal Farm and Brave New World. And we are living it. Yeah. We are living it. And some of it is good and some of it is horrifying. Well, I I am in awe uh, and envious that you have seen that progression from how it was to each little milestone as it occurred to the way it is today. Because you, you, unlike you know, the generations after you don't have that full scope. You don't, no one has that full picture like you. And it's so important to know where our technology came from or or the lack of it and how it appeared because it gives us a clue in the direction that it's going to. And you, you kind of like, especially being in an industry like music where it's so technology dependent and the way you recorded. Uh, Yeah, no, no, it's very, very different. Uh, We recorded on a two track. 20 minutes. I did two takes. 
one for balance. It was at Gold Star with Stan, which became one of his main main producers, uh, main, main engineers. And uh, the, I sang it all the way through. There's not one splice on To Know Him Is To Love Him. Yeah. Not one splice. Did you hear that, Amato? Not one splice. You know, it was all the way through 20 minutes, walked out of the studio. Yeah. And that, but that's how we, you recorded that. It was analog. Yeah. yeah. Then now there's digital, you know, and there's, you know, all the things that are today do some of the music of today. I love, but some of it, I find, I find it exhaustingly awful. Uh, I, I agree with you. I, I agree. <laughs> some of it is just nonsensical and I, some of it is ugly. Ugly is a good word. Well, you know, the Cardi B song, which is brilliant, you know, the uh, with Megan Thee Stallion. And, uh, is it WAP? I mean, the, the white. And then the background, do you know what they're saying? Do, do what? you know what they're saying? No. Because I could decipher all this. They're saying there's whores in the house. There's whores <laughs> in the house. This is what we're teaching our kids. I, get, I, I don't know what to say. Yeah. I don't want to get into it because I have very, very strong emotions about that. And yeah. I'm not going to get into it. Whenever you do want to get into it, you call me and we'll record another okay. podcast about that. But, um, uh, and also today kids just recorded music on their iPhones now, right? It, now you don't have to go to a studio. You don't have to do any of that. You can just press record and, you know, record over Zoom, right? Yeah. So, uh, you know, you were telling me that uh, you were told your parents if they gave you $10, you promised them it'd be a big house and car and horses. And and when you were in junior high, you you, you just longed to be famous and you longed for that, but you got it right. And, and all of that, all of what you longed for as a child did come true for you. And when it was unfolding, did you have that um, wherewithal that what you had wished for was, was coming true? Or was there a moment where you just kind of stopped and said, oh my gosh, look at all these things. It did come true or, or is that not really even something that you think about or thought about? I can sum it up by doctor, my boyfriend after. Uh, the psychiatrist. Elvis, the psychiatrist, Dr. Yeah. Vadim Kondratiev saying to me after my second Oscar nomination, which was The Rescuers, oh, yeah. I did the music and lyrics for The res re Rescuers because I also write music. And he said to me, I've never forgotten this. He said, Carol, are you happy now? And I looked at him and I went, Vadim, if everything you have ever wished for, dreamt of, wanted, needed in your life, is coming true before your very eyes. You don't have the right to be unhappy. That doesn't mean that I have not had sad moments, and and I have, and you know, moments of clarity about what am I doing with my life and blah blah blah. But I'll never forget his statement and my statement. And he went, "Bravo." And he was a psycho. I had a speech impediment as a child. A psychoanalysis. He was the one that the psychiatrist would go to. So you had to go two more years to school. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. And those were my words. Wow. And he said, bravo. Uh, what I also love about you of being a pioneer, so to speak, is that you, uh, and please correct me if I'm wrong, because the internet is not always correct, but <clears throat> I will. You, yes. Of course you will. What am I thinking? 
you uh, co-wrote or wrote the theme song to Star Search and uh, Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous. Did I get that right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I don't have to correct you. I commend you. <laughs> so, uh, and the reason I bring those two up is because they were such they were such pop culture phenomenons at that time. Today, absolutely. You know, there, you know, today there's American Idol, America's Got Talent, and all those reality shows. But right. at the time, Star, Star Search was the only one of its kind. And every, just about every huge big person today cycled through uh, that show. From Britney Spears. Know, yes, Christina I, Aguilera. I voted on Britney Spears. <laughs> oh, you Actually, did? Yes. Oh my gosh! So you I'm were sure a judge. You can look it up in the archives. I was one of the judges when she was on Star Search. Okay, so this is great then. So, um, and also we'll get to lifestyles, but that was also like you know MTV Cribs became like that was it took its inspiration from lifestyles of the rich and famous. But, um, so for, for Star Search, you wrote the theme song. Um, co-wrote the theme song, and that ran in the eighties and nineties, and they they brought it back for like a split second in the early aughts. But, but, um, so how, how do you come up like when someone says writes a theme, like write me a theme song and you don't, you don't even like, you don't even know the show yet. How do you, where do you even begin to like, where do you start? <laughs> where do you start writing a theme song for a show like that? By listening to what they, whoever they, the ubiquitous, they meaning the producer, the director, whatever have to say and taking notes because they don't know how to write it, I do. So when they tell me what they need or they want or what it's about, and then if you look at a script or, or they show you a segment of the show or you look at a rough cut of the film, it all comes together. And I take a pad and paper and I write, I just finished a theme song for a new film and I write everything down because people will tell you what they need, but they don't know how to put it in song form you know that's an art form but they do know how to talk oh god and so the bottom line is they will say well you know and i will be writing and i i can go to my notes and that's how i did star search uh, there's a plan to make believe where a dream is but a dream it can all come true if you do it now or whatever whatever i wrote and uh, <laughs> but it was to the melody that was, I didn't write the melody on that one, but I loved the melody. And Ed McMahon, it was Ed McMahon's show. Mm -hmm. Yep. And I went to, um, they flew me to Florida, I think it was three or four times to 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 be a judge. And that's how I judged Britney Spears. And what, what are your memories of that? That she was adorable. I think, I think she won, I think. But, you know, after, but, I don't remember. I mean, it was a long time yeah. ago. I think Lee. I think Leanne Rhymes was on there too, and she actually won. I I didn't judge her. I didn't yeah. judge Leanne. So, so Britney um, Spears is, you know, still making headlines today. So, oh my God. so, <laughs> so She's back been through so much. Oh, I know. I know. I know. When you look at somebody, and because you're judging them, is there something as star power, star talent that you can harness and see in the early years. Obviously, Phil Spector heard your voice uh, and 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 heard something, thought something, saw something and wrote that song. Right. And then you're looking at Britney Spears dancing and singing her heart out in front of you as a judge. You're doing the same thing. Is there is it a feeling? Is it is it what, what, what do you what what defines that? 
It's just, there's a, it's like somebody is touched with magic dust. I mean, it's just there. I don't know what there as President Clinton would have said. I don't know what there there is, but you can't miss it because it's there. And it's if it's star power or the beginnings of it, it's almost like you can see it. You can sense it, mm. you know, and that's what was Brittany. You know, I remember once being with one of the executives from Motown and and we went to see um, uh, Bette Midler. And he said to me, oh, my God, we've got to sign Bette Midler to Motown. And as it turned out, she had just been signed. But when she was on stage, it was and this was not when she was a star yet. You could there was you you couldn't miss it. You mm. just couldn't miss it. It was there. Yeah. And there became their success. Yeah. There goes there is success. Yeah. That's crazy. I mean, that's so beautiful. No, it's not. It's not crazy. Some people are touched by that. I mean, in my mind, Barbara Streisand and Johnny Mathis were touched by God. Their voices were touched by God. Mm. I'm not a religious fanatic. Do not get me wrong. But there is something so breathtaking, so compelling, so outstanding about them. I mean, when Johnny Mathis sang Tonight or Maria or, you know, the 12th of Never or Streisand did any of her songs, except Evergreen, of course. Um, the bottom line is, I mean, you were compelled to listen. You could not take your eyes away or your ears because it, it was beyond beautiful. It is what it is. Now, for Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous, how do you write a song that defines a lifestyle that's rich and famous? Well, because, well, I was at Victoria Principal's tennis tournament in La Costa, and uh, I was sitting next to Robin, and I said to Robin, do you have a theme song called Champagne Wishes and Caviar Dreams? And he said, no, no, I don't. And I said, Robin, why don't you? He said, well, if you feel that strongly about it, Carol, write it. So I did. So you just came up with that name just off the top of your no, head? No, no, it was a phrase, but I we came up with putting it, there's a land to make believe, dreams you come and you can dance away, champagne wishes and caviar dreams. We, we incorporated it into a song. I took it to Dionne Warwick. Because at that time, Dion was coming off of That's What Friends Are For. Mm -hmm. She was hotter than a pistol, still is. And the bottom line is, that was the voice I heard. And yeah. Albert Hammond, myself, and Dion made a couple changes in it. Uh, you know, I wrote the music with Albert. And, uh, you know, and Dion made some changes. And the song was born. It was on the show for 10 years. That's incredible. You know, thank you. <laughs> I thought <laughs> and, so too. <laughs> and did you ever get your parents the house? Did you ever get the cars? Did you ever do? Um, did yes, you I got my father after I did Hey Little Cobra. Um, I was given a Mustang. And then I was given, uh, I did a GTO thing and they gave me a brand new GTO and my parents needed a car. So I went to Mexico to go scuba diving. That's one of the loves of my life. Barbie Benton is my dive buddy. And, and Jean-Michel Cousteau, I mean, we're diving around the world. My sister's in Fiji right now. Oh. As of today, yesterday oh. she left. 
But the bottom line is, um, so I wanted to do something lovely for my parents and my father. So I was a baby blue because I asked him, what color do you like? He didn't know what I was, why? And I, he said, oh, I like baby blue. So I went scuba diving and he went to pick up my car thinking it was my car. And I had a red, I had to put a big red bow on it and the pink slip. And I gave the car to my father. Of course, oh. with fortune today. Yeah. But, and the, but everybody, all the kids, my dad being a jockey, loved to race. And all these kids would, you know, line up guys at the stoplights wanting to race my father because my dad was like, you could barely see the top of his head, but he was driving a GTO. And my dad, being having been a jockey, would win the race. But you know, so my that was I gave them that car, and I helped buy them their their house. Yes. Do you know a lot? Like, are you a car person? Um, yes, you are. I love cars. Why? I am a car. I grew up in a car culture. California, Southern California, is a car culture. Yeah. So I grew up with where girls would be, you know, wanting like um, diamonds and um, mink coats at that time. And whatever I I I loved cars, uh, you know maybe that's why I you know was lucky to to write Hey Little Cobra. Yeah, I was, I was, that's what I was thinking, you know, yeah. and uh, and but that is definitely more of a of a of a boys club for sure. Um, no kidding. <laughs> so interesting that like you know that was just something. You, your relationship with the boys club I feel has always been a little bit different as a woman because you could you were, you could go toe to toe with them. You were not the meek person who wanted to be kept with minks and diamonds, like you said, and you could I do write have these things, by the way. I, I have very generous boyfriends, very generous boyfriends. But no, I mean, I wanted to be my own person. Yeah. I was determined to do it. So do you have a car collection or do you right now, or do you just, you just have the I cars? I have a gorgeous car. I don't drive it. But it's beautiful. And thanks to my brother, I don't own my Cobra anymore, which Carol Shelby said, Carol, whatever you do, never sell this car. It's going to be worth a fortune one day. Well, I went scuba diving. I signed over the pink slip to my brother. Idiot. Signed it over. And um, I left to go diving. And my brother, I said, whatever you do, do not sell this car. Carol told me, never, never, never sell this car. I came back from Mexico. He had a brand new Porsche and $6,700. And he gave me a check for 3000 And my car today is worth $1,500,000. I just saw the new owner contacted me and showed me the pictures. I painted my Cobra every other color but white. I mean, it was green, apple green, blue, black, wine color, red, gold, he painted it white and it's beautiful. And we, we've been talking about it. It only had like three owners and my engine number, engine number 2544 is, I, I had two Cobras by the way. The first one Carol gave me was a 260. You don't know what I'm talking about, but if the guys are listening, they do. It was a 260 <laughs> engine, but it, it had a lot of bugs in it. So then he created the 289, which was my car. And um, what can I say? I mean, I, I wish I had it, but I don't. But 
nothing I can do about it. Yes. But I love how you still know where that car is. Like, it's like, um, it's like when well, he you... found me, the, oh. the, the new owner, because That's... you know, I, it's like in, in the car community of hail of Cobra. Yes. It's like very famous that car because I'm the only girl who ever owned a car. In fact, the first one was in my parents, my mother's name, Gail Kleinbard, my insurance, because I couldn't have insurance. I was too young. Yeah. And, you know, and it was a, the high, the fastest production car ever built at that time. So there was no way that I could have insurance. So I was carried under my parents' insurance. I love that you're known for singing a hit song, for composing a hit song, <laughs> and for, you know, for having this hit car that that everyone in a the hit car, car that everyone in the car culture knows belong to you and the owner's seeking you out. I think that's fabulous. Yeah, and he's very sweet, the owner. The owner oh. he's very kind. I just saw a picture of, of his little child and, and his beautiful wife and my car. I mean, it's beautiful. He restored the whole thing. Amazing. I, we're going to have to get a picture of it and uh, and and run it here. I have uh, it. I have pictures of it. Ex of course you do. Carol, you take pictures all the time. Like I, after I met you at, um, uh, at, at one of the, the events, Rosses. you the emailed Rosses. me, the Ross house, you emailed me all these pictures that we took together and your, your, your archival <sighs> collection is, must be insane. It, do you, are, are you a, are you just, you just love taking pictures or do you take it to record a memory or are you doing it for something else? I mean, you're always, always taking pictures. Because I didn't when I was younger. I oh. have three pictures of me with the teddy bears, mm. three pictures. I have no pictures of me with Elvis. I never took pictures, never knew to take pictures. Mm. And, um, and, and like Barbie and I, when we do uh, Oscar events, pre-Oscar yeah. events, we take pictures with everything so that we don't wear the same outfit twice. <laughs> you know, that's one of the reasons we take pictures. But I love taking pictures and it's only a little camera. I don't use my yes. cell phone. I like my camera. Yes, I know it. I know it is a camera. It is not, it's not a it's not a cell phone. I, and, I I, and I have a cell phone. I don't use it except in an emergency. And I, there's a book being done about my life too and called Elvis, Rocky and Me. And it's going to be coming out. And the bottom line is, uh, now they have to go through all the different pictures that they want, you know, because I have so many, but I don't have from way back then, which I, I wish I did. This is where we go to the part where we wrap it up because you've, we're so generous with your time and, you. and we're, we're at the present now, uh, with, with a, with a documentary that is in the works and a book that is in the works. So all of these stories that you've recounted to me and others that we haven't touched on and more um, are all going to be in there. So uh, definitely everyone is going to keep an eye on for that. And, you know, maybe when uh, it comes out, you'll come back on this podcast. I and, would love uh, it. And we'll talk some it. more, but. Uh, and we'll probably see each other at an event. Right. We will be running into each other at some point because we always do. Thank you so much, Mazie.